The world of agriculture technology is vast and constantly evolving, with new innovations and companies emerging at a rapid pace. At AgTech Media Group, we understand the importance of staying updated and connected in this dynamic industry, and that's why we're thrilled to announce the launch of our new AgTech Company Directory, a comprehensive and user-friendly resource designed to help you navigate the complex landscape of AgTech innovators. More than just a list, it's a curated collection of companies leading the charge in transforming the AgTech sector from startups pioneering new farming methods to established companies adopting cutting-edge technologies. Our directory spans a wide range of leaders dedicated to advancing agriculture through technology. Whether you're a farmer looking for the latest in crop monitoring tools and investors seeking promising ag tech startups or a researcher interested in sustainable farming practices, ag tech directory is designed to cater to your specific needs. You can filter by sector, technology, size, or location to find exactly what you're looking for. To learn more and to claim your company listing, visit agtechcompanies.com. If you are starting a vertical farm and don't know where to begin or which technology would suit your needs, then reach out to the experts at Cultivated. As indoor farm brokers, they help connect you to the right technology and ensure your project is successful. Best of all, their service is free because they work on behalf of their partners. Visit cultivated.com to learn more. And that's spelled C-U-L-T-I-V-A-T-D.com or click the link in the show notes. One of the researchers there or one of the directors there was kind of experimenting with, and yet the, the analogy between like a, a food computer, a food server, and then you have like some local food production and a bit bigger and a little bit bigger. And it was something that, you know, like inspired me almost right away into looking into it a bit more, especially with the tech background. Back then I would say, okay, well, if I'm gonna do it, I'm gonna do like ultra high tech, right? That's high tech as it gets. Welcome to the Vertical Farming Podcast, weekly conversations with fascinating CEOs, founders, and ad tech visionaries. Join us every week as we dive deep into the world of vertical farming with your host, Harry Duran. Vertical Farming Podcast Season 8. Regular listeners, welcome back. I appreciate the time you put into supporting this show and sending folks to listen. We're having new listeners come in all the time and give us great feedback about how much they're enjoying the show and these conversations, so thank you for that. If this is your first time listening, you are in the right place, as this is the show where we interview fascinating CEOs and founders of the leading vertical farming companies from around the world. I'm your host, Harry Duran. In case you missed last week's episode, we spoke to Alberto Aguilar. He's the CEO of Plantiform, and he provided a captivating and insightful perspective on the challenges and opportunities in this rapidly growing space and the work they're doing up north in Canada, well, except north from me. Alberto talked about the work they're doing with the Plantiform in-home garden, as well as the work they're doing on their first fogponic vertical farm, which they're in the process of building. Lots happening with Alberto and his team, and it's been exciting to see his journey so far. I'm glad we got to meet in person and chat on the show. This week, we have the pleasure of speaking with Gabriel Zarafonitis. He's the president and founder of Farm Anywhere. He's a self-taught entrepreneur, and he shares in this episode his passion for sustainable agriculture and the challenges he faced in building an ultra-high-tech farming solution. We talk about the importance of striking a balance between tech and farming expertise, while highlighting the significance of quality control and exceptional customer support. We go deep into container farming, and we get valuable insights on educating beginning growers, understanding the marketing aspects, and staying up-to-date with cutting-edge innovations in controllers and irrigation systems. Gabriel and I connected at... Agrami in Dubai, courtesy of the Cultivated team, and I'm glad we finally were able to put something on the calendar and catch up. Really infectious energy, and I know you'll enjoy this conversation. If you are enjoying this episode or any of our past episodes, I'd love it if you leave a rating and a review at ratethispodcast.com 
forward slash VFP. I'd love to read yours out next. I'm overdue for reviews, so get those in, please. These episodes are always chock full of great takeaways, and as a listener, I want you to focus all your energy on our conversation. So rest assured, you can always visit verticalfarmingpodcast.com to read the full show notes of each episode, which includes all guest links as well. Okay, before we jump into this uninterrupted conversation with Gabrielle, here are a few words from the folks that support this show. This year, Indoor Ag Tech is coming to New York City's Times Square, and it's bringing together the world's leading growers, retailers, tech providers, seed companies, and investors. Join us from June 29th to June 30th to meet, expand networks, and produce fruitful partnerships. The team has been gracious enough to provide listeners of this show with an additional 10% off of the registration. Simply use promo code VFP when you register and lock that in. And by the way, if you're on the fence, remember that early bird discount ends on May 11th. After a pivotal year for CEA, the summit will explore what's needed to ensure the industry can continue innovating and growing into a crucial part of the global agri-food supply chain. I'm excited to introduce our latest sponsor, Ounce of Hope, an aquaponics cannabis company. Ounce of Hope utilizes aquaponics to cultivate cannabis and seafood livestock. They also perform their own extraction and product formulation in the heart of Memphis, Tennessee. While managing 5,000 gallons of koi and tilapia, Ounce of Hope's system allows for abundant production of fish poop nutrients, which you can now buy online. This product is concentrated plant food for any size garden. Fish poop is free of emulsions, bad smells, and won't burn your plants. Ounce of Hope is giving Vertical Farming Podcast listeners 50% off their first order. So swim on over to ounceofhope.com to experience the aquaponics side of cannabis and use promo code FISHPOOP. How fun is that? So Gabriel Zarafonitis. President and founder of Form Anywhere. Thank you so much for joining me on the Vertical Farming Podcast. Thank you. Same here. It's, it's a privilege. Yeah. Thanks again. I think the listener will get, uh, knows by now, there'll probably be some mention of Cultivated because they seem to be the connector <laughs> for all things related to this show, not only being a sponsor, but we first met in Dubai. It's so funny to meet people from North America, but you meet them on the other side of the world. And we were both there for AgraMe conference. But maybe start there. How did you end up there? <laughs> and what was that story like? Well, all I can say is what a ride it's been, right? Yeah. Get there to that point, all the way back to the original beginning, I guess that we can say. Yeah, it was a lot of different struggles and a lot of learning at the same time as well, too. That really translates into like what we had at Agrame, you know, in terms of presentation and product there. It was, it's a long journey that keeps on going. And it's extremely satisfying, though. I think probably one of the best journey you can have in a lot of careers, I would say. Was that your first time in the region or had you been there before? First time in the region, yeah. Okay. So it was the first time for me as well, just that part of the world. So it was a lot to take in because you're trying to figure out like what the vibe there in Dubai itself. And then the conference is, is, was showing all these opportunities that talked ad nauseum on the show about, you know, how much food gets imported there. But if you had to think about what were some of the big takeaways specifically from that trip and being in that region, like what was that like for you? One main takeaways was the acute understanding from the citizens, the local people about the predicament, I guess, that, you know, they're in yeah. and the insane desire to find a solution quickly to mm -hmm. that problem, right? That was like constant theme as, you know, we know what the problem is. What can you offer us? What's your solution? Has mm. it been tested before in the desert? What makes you different? Like very pinpointed question. And, uh, and basically they would just move on to the next and move on to the next booth. And you could see them like coming your way almost down 
the aisle, you know, yeah. so, so you can see like the eagerness in them. And so did you refine your pitch as you were having <laughs> over the two days? A hundred percent. Yeah. Cool. One thing that really, I mean, you know, we've done pitches in Canada and in the U.S. And, you know, so you kind of, you go in thinking that your pitch is as refined as it gets. And then you quickly yeah. find out that the need is so different and that the end goal is so different as well, too, that the questions and the KPI, so to speak, you know, moves and then you have to adapt quickly, you know, to give them the information that they want. Yeah. And so rewinding the clock back a little bit, your background is more in project management. Is that where you started your career? Not even. Yeah. Uh, my background uh, goes back to my first company when I was 14 doing window cleaning. Yeah. <laughs> Actually quit high school to go do it and okay. school myself for the rest. So progression of different companies from there on didn't grow up with any means, you could say. So there was quite a bit of fire in there, right? So I went from window cleaning to cleaning, then eventually to a tech company with one of our customers that really liked that solution that we had built. So they completely bought the tech company out. And that tech company was a little bit detrimental to the worker in terms of like their well-being, so to speak, because we're a lot of tracking and a lot of okay. things like that was happening. So on the next venture, I said, oh, this one, I got to do something that actually makes a difference that will move the needle for the planet. Yeah. So, you know, back then it was quite popular with big jobs saying, if you do something, do it so that you could change the world. So, yeah. kind of, you know, being a bit of inspired by that there. So yeah. that's how I got into like self, just self-taught myself, vertical farming and go agriculture. And back then we had, you know, very rundamental equipment, like, yeah. uh, just raspberry pies, right? To be able to control oh, your lights yeah. because there was really nothing else unless you wanted to go with controllers, really, yeah. with like Siemens, for example, but. That was on another level in terms of cost too. Yeah. So basically it was a lot of Jimmy rigging, spending time on the beginning stage of Reddit really back then. And then YouTube, obviously, which is like the main point where we get a lot of information, <laughs> I guess. Yeah. I think people who are new to an industry, it's almost like the default. And I think people don't take into account how much you can learn on YouTube. <laughs> And what a resource it is, even just in the, if I think about the podcasting space, like when I started, like there was some YouTube, but if you think about this world in, when I was growing up there, you know, the internet was a big deal, but even when the internet came up, there was still YouTube took a while to come online. And I think the speed at which you can learn and almost like not make the mistakes that other people have made by watching people on YouTube has been pretty crazy. So I, it's interesting to see how quickly you can grow and how quickly you can learn skill set and be well-versed in an industry just from YouTube nowadays, which I think a lot of people sometimes take for granted. Yeah. And not only that, but you can now, like, you know, the creators on YouTube, they have like those Discord channels as well, too, yeah. and those private groups, right? So not only you're learning super quickly with all the different resources, but then you have access also to that little tiny community yeah. on the back end that follows that creator. And then you can clean it even more. Like I did this experiment, like, for example, one of our container farms is mushrooms, right? And yeah. mushroom is still in an, it's an infancy, you could say, yeah. compared to like leafy greens. So the importance for us to, you know, stay on top of things and see what the community is doing and getting feedback from that, then that's exactly where the best information is, is by someone just practicing putting some mushroom blocks in their basement, really, and mm. just kind of getting information and us at the same time too, sharing that information back, say we're not growing in a basement, we're going to maybe in a bit more controlled environment, but yeah. that's what we're seeing with this particular type of equipment, for example. Yeah. You're in Montreal, is that correct? No, I'm in uh, Vancouver. 
So you're in Vancouver, sorry. And then where did you grow up? I grew up in Montreal, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so about eight years ago, I moved to Vancouver. Okay. And what was life like growing up in Montreal? I'm, I'm curious about this entrepreneurial drive that you have. Is that more of like a culture? Is that more of your environment? You know, where does that come from? Well, I think for sure environment played a big role just yeah. because it was a need, right? It was a need to create revenue. Yeah. It was a need to move. So I guess it did a bit of that drive. Also, I wasn't that great at school as well, too. So that was an extra, you know, I was a bit daydreaming and a bit thing, playing with Legos as well, too, like yeah. earlier on, right? So it wasn't really my thing, I guess, school. Now it is a bit more, right? Like yeah. always being self-taught. So I guess that was like the drive. And then I guess the entrepreneurial spirit, you know, my grandpa had restaurants as well, too, being great, you know, in Montreal. So maybe that got transferred to a DNA, who knows? Yeah. But for sure, there's a natural tendency to go that path, let's say. And so if I'm ever in, are there any good Greek diners in Vancouver? I mean, I haven't been back that much. So no, I think, anyways, from what my grandpa keeps telling me, the day day of like the really real big food coming from Greece, yeah. immigration yes. has kind of passed a little bit and it's been diluted in with, for example, Italian food yeah. uh, and Arabic food as well too. So yeah. yeah. It's a shit. I mean, the, I love Greek cuisine and I grew up in New York and I lived in New York City. So definitely like in Astoria, Queens, there's a no shortage of Greek diners and Greek food. And there's something specifically about that aspect of Mediterranean, like food and culture that I, it, it's got its own taste. And it's, as I'm sure you all know, were you born in Greece? No, it was not. No, I was born okay. in, in Montreal. So it's basically my grandpa that came okay. from Greece when he was 14. Okay. And do you still have family there? Do you ever go back? Uh, so apparently we do have some family there. I've never been to Greece yet. Imagine that. I've been yeah. to 30 countries now. Had the goal to do 30 countries under 30. Okay. I just revealed my age there back. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, uh, no, but it's definitely on the bucket list to, to go to Europe more and, and go see where my grandpa grew up as well. Too. That would be cool. And when you go, I'll introduce you to a previous guest. I'll pull up his name, but he's in Greece and he's doing vertical farming there as well. So <laughs> that would bring it back full circle. Yeah. Yeah. I, any vertical farm that I can visit, I'm down for as well too. I'm big on like, you know, sharing of information. Yeah. Maybe even like down to the point where, you no, know, everything should be open source, I guess. Yes. Yeah. So I would love to see a farm in Greece or anywhere else in the world for sure. Yeah. Christos Rafteogianis, that's his name, from City Crop. So, from City Crop. Um, okay, cool. Yeah. <laughs> I'll let you know when we have the ticket book there. <laughs> so, you started Farm Anywhere in 20, like you were saying, you know, some of that early technology. 2016, I think, is when you started, right? And what were you seeing that had you excited about the space? Cause it's still early. And, and even now we're seeing, we're feeling like this is like, a, I don't know if this would be considered a second wave or a third wave in terms of like vertical farming. But what was it that you saw back then that got you excited about the opportunity? It was actually a TED Talk okay. that inspired me, the MIT Open Lab. And one of the researchers there, or one of the directors there was kind of experimenting with, and yet the, the analogy between like a, a food computer, a food server, and then you have like some local food production and a bit bigger and a little bit bigger. And it was something that, you know, like inspired me almost right away into looking into it a bit more, especially with the tech background. Back then, I would say, okay, well, if I'm going to do it, I'm going to do like ultra high tech, right? As high tech as it gets. 
Yeah. Which turned out to be a big problem <laughs> that, you know, was, I guess, hard mistakes to learn, especially 2017, 2018, the years to come after that, quite ambitious, so to speak. But also that's a big part of the DNA of what Farmingware is now is because of those early years. I guess now I, we would say like we're in the flip phone stage of EA. And back then we were probably at the fax machine. <laughs> Putting things together and just waiting for things to come back because yeah. data we couldn't export it. We had to use USB sticks and then stick them in the yeah. computer to get the data. Right? We couldn't see it live yet and things like that. So, what was the model back then, and how has it changed in terms of what your offerings was were when you when you started? Yeah. So back then, right away we went like, okay, we're going to also hack. We're going to make our own lights. We're going to make our own controllers. Well, we didn't really have a choice for making our own controllers, actually. So, you know, that was a necessity, so to speak. And we're also going to roboticize the whole thing. So, mm. And another thing, too, I'm a big fan of, of shipping container farms as well, too, just because, you know, quick to expand, easy to move around, if ever, and hyper-local farming, right? Which is still great. Like, obviously, we don't work. That's what farming where it does. But I do think that there's still a space for traditional vertical farming, Inside buildings, for example, and all that, there, there's definitely a, there's not a one size fit all. So, but back then we were doing anything that has to do with buildings. It was 100% in containers. We're using refer containers as well too, which has a whole host of other problems as well. And then we found out pretty quickly that one robotics is expensive, you know, and it's plagued with issues. Yeah. Also, another thing too was okay, making your own controller is great, but then you have to be able to support those. You got to be able to have the parts for all those as well too. So when you start expanding the farms and all your clients as well too that are operating these farms, you got to be able to support all these farmers. And at the end of the day, you become responsible for their well-being as well because literally their farm is in your hands. So if you can't support the controllers, if you can't support your robotics, then they're literally in trouble, right? Mm -hmm. Not just financially, but you know, like a farmer. Got to think about it a little bit as a, a pyramid as well, too. You're, you know, as a equipment manufacturer, we're at the top of the pyramid because we're building the tech that people are using. Right underneath that is all the farmers. And yeah. then all the farmers, you know, they're working hard to be able to produce the food that's needed. And then after that, you have all of the people that rely on that farmer to produce food, right? So yeah. your trickle down effect is literally 10x every single time. So mm-hmm. if you have a farm that goes offline, Really, you stop producing food for maybe, you know, 10, 15, 20,000 people. So, you know, I think that when startups, you know, start and doing the marketing before they even have an actual product and they push out product that hasn't been tested yet, it's not just a farmer that has their, the consequences of that. It's also everyone else that relies on that. Yeah, that's a good point because, you know, the farmers, you know, when they get into it, I would imagine a lot of them because they come from a farming background or they're interested in like the business of, of farming and getting the product, growing the product and selling it. You start getting into the technical aspects of like maintaining software and what looking out for updates and, you know, all the moving parts behind the scenes. It starts to, I would imagine, overwhelm them if that's not their expertise. And if they, they begin to rely too heavily on tech to, to get what they need done, you know, one little misstep or one little hiccup or something, one little update that didn't go right in, <laughs> in the firmware or something, you know, along those lines, you know, thinking about the tech issues, you know, they start to become, it's a really fragile part of the chain. A hundred percent, you know, it's just a question of clicking the wrong switch on the software side and get a call real quick. My HVAC isn't turning on, right? Why is that happening? And 
So for sure. And, and it's not necessarily because the end user is necessarily not tech savvy, but like the farmer is not just operating technology in the background, like an IT department at an office, right? Like they're harvesting, they're selling, they're packing, they're cleaning, they're following gap practices and all that. So it's easy to like just turn around while you had your box, your finger just touched the screen on the way out, right? Then all of a sudden you change something and you didn't realize it because you're just packing things, getting ready to be able to deliver the food. So definitely having anything built around tech centric in terms of like food production, not only does it have to be user friendly, but it has to be a little bit bulletproof in the sense that you can quickly go back and diagnose an issue if there is. And if anything, the, like the way like my, our philosophy here for building our tech is that if the controller cannot do it on the software side, there's got to be a physical way to do it and bypass the controller. So either it's like you plug it in straight into the wall and you bypass the relay, right? Or, you know, all kinds of different systems like that so that you could have a physical backup if something happens. And also for the end user, it just helps them be able to troubleshoot issues as well too because they can take that tech aspect out of the way yeah. and just make sure that the physical aspect is working properly first before they go towards the software side and so on and so forth. Yeah, that's definitely important. I definitely want to dive into the a little bit of the tech in a second. But when you first looked at the model and you looked at specifically your business model, did you know from day one that you did not want to be in the business of actual farming and be more of the provider and helping people on the tech side? So I guess you could say like, this, so there's a farming or 1.0 and there's a farming yeah. or 2.0, right? So, okay. so the 1.0 one was, we're going to be 100% manufacturer of the tech, right? Like from technology to lights to robotics and all that, which cost us dearly. The company failed, right? Had to close down. And then for a period of about three years, I was just kind of floating as a consultant working on different projects, working for other companies, doing designs for them and things like that. And it's only during the COVID era when we really had like a lot of strain mm-hmm. into the um, industry in terms of the food production industry that went back into like farming where 2.0, you could say. And now the philosophy was completely different. It was, we will practice what we preach. So therefore, we have a farm in our facility that we grow food in that people actually consume. So mushroom farm and a leafy green farm. Okay. That also doubles as an R&D facility so we can test out things here and there. Yeah. And also by practicing what we preached and we can give proper advice to potential customers. Yes, this will work and this will not work because, you know, container farm is not the end all be all, right? Like it works in certain aspects, but it doesn't. So by us being in a urban area, but a little bit out of the outskirts of Vancouver, we have a really good idea of what makes sense and what doesn't make sense in that part. And therefore, you know, we're getting a lot of feedback like that from our own operation as well. And also that doubles as a school as well. So when you get a container from Farm Anywhere, you could come to our facility and get trained. We'll even throw a little bit of booby trap here and there in the containers to help you like try to diagnose, okay, like oh, this good. is what it is. Pinch a, a quarter inch tubing, for example, to stop one of the emitters, things like that, you know, just to, uh, to test out. So, you know, it, it really became 2.0 really became farmer centric. How can we build a solution that is a tool and not a crutch to the end user and that they're not necessarily tech savvy or they're really tech savvy, but not necessarily farmers to try to find a good balance in between that. And really all that became from literally just exploding the first version of the company, I guess. Like you you gotta, you gotta break things to be able to figure out sometimes your mistakes and then get a reality check, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. So for folks that are not familiar with the, the farm anywhere offerings in the model, do you, can you talk a little bit about what that looks like? Is it 
Do you provide all in completely set up containers, components, or, you know, just kind of walk people through who you currently serve and what the current offerings are? Yeah. So when I look back into starting 2.0, basically what I decided to do was to, okay, we don't need to reinvent the manufacturing process. That's been, you know, proven out. And then we also have the example like Tesla example that can quickly iterate on under software or not software under hardware part and software as well. And then you have the other side of the spectrum, like Boeing or Lockheed Martin that has huge operations or car companies, right? So kind of took the time to study a little bit about each of the business models and how the manufacturing part worked. And one thing is always certain between all of them is that they all have a base model. So they have like a base, let's call it the SE model, the like model. So we call it like the universal life farm. Yeah. And that's like a combination of like the last years of, you know, me working on different projects where I found like a sweet spot of a farm that's a light shell has all the equipment in it that, that you need. And that, that would produce at scale. So it allows us to be able to use all the economy of scale that you have in the normal manufacturing process. So we build those. And then once we get an order for that farm, also it allows us to keep that container in stock, right? That's farm in stock. So a lot of people turn to shipping containers because of speed to market versus like having to pull permits on a regular building and all that. That takes yeah. a long time. So that we have in stock. So if you want, we can purchase just the light farm. And the light farm has HVAC, electrical, plumbing, everything that you need to kind of get going. And then you can offer it with your own equipment. So you have an existing greenhouse, for example, with a bunch of nursery carts, and you wanted to like take an extra space out of your nursery and just have a nursery room in the container, you can. You could just have that if you want. And, you know, that's quite affordable as well, too, in terms of pricing. And it's fast. So like literally the next day, we could ship it out if you're that much in a need, right? And then from there, from that base, then we opted it with the discipline of the farmer. So either it's mushroom production, leafy greens. We're getting a lot of research R&D as well, too, from like universities or private corporations looking to do feed breeding, governmental agencies as well, too. So that has a bit more specialized equipment, not really focused on, you know, making a profit, but more focused on really tight controls. And the way we build the containers with an integrated HVAC system as well, too. So there's a full duct in there with UV lights, with mercury team filters. It allows us to really have 0.5 degree difference between the front and the back of the container, which was mm. a big problem in the past with containers with it being so long and narrow. And yeah. they love that for really be able to test out different theories on their crop. And the offering keeps on going from there. We're always looking to fulfill the need if there is. And so, you know, ending our total R&D there, we'll, we're testing out a few different methods to be able to fulfill these somewhere else, but always following the principles that we've been talking about. So that's the, the offering. And then we also have a new main side division, I guess, too, which is just regular agricultural equipment as well, too. Like an irrigation skid, probably okay. the most compact irrigation skid you can get. Comes with tank, toasters, pump, and it's within 30 square, 30 inch by 30 inch. It's really, really small, up to 150 gallons. So it was built for a container, right? Because of the tight environment. But why not offer it to everyone else? Even other shipping container farm companies, if they want it, they're more than welcome just to help the market out. And we're going to be developing that future in the future as well, too. Yeah, it sounds like with all the experience you had, having to retrofit or create or maintain equipment specifically for that container forums, it seems like the more you do that, the more you become subject matter experts. 
in terms of the limitations, even just that the designation of the change in degrees, you know, from the front to the back of the unit, like the more time you spend in that space, it's almost like you start to know the space so well and you know what works in that space, what doesn't from crops, from tech, even to the irrigation. And so, you know, do you feel like that's what's been happening? You just become the more experience you have, the more clients you have, and the more questions you have about the limitations of that space, the more you start to understand what's possible and what you can do there. Yeah, definitely. The feedback from our customers as well, too, that also some of them, they like to experiment, right, themselves. So say, hey, here we tried to do this and it you know, didn't really work out or it worked great, right? So also because we're really open as a company, even to the point where, you know, eventually I'd like to maybe even go to the open source kind of model. It goes both ways with our customers. When they contact us, we're super open about how things are done why we're doing them in a certain way. And then that kind of gets back to us as well too. When they start operating the farm, they're super open about sharing their information about what trials they've done and all that. And in terms of like manufacturers, a lot of them say, if you use the container in a way that it's not meant, you void your warranty, right? And then it basically stops the customer from giving you feedback because they're scared that you're going to avoid the warranty if yeah. they break something, right? And us, it's the opposite because we use only off-the-shelf parts. We don't develop anything. We do system integration, right? So the process, we put it all together and we don't need to do tech ourselves, for example, on the controller side, because now there's a bunch of companies doing that tech. So let's just take the best technology possible. That's the simplest and easiest to maintain. Let's implement that into the container. And if the end user or farmer is breaks that controller, it's not us that has, like, we will help you with the warranty. But at the end of the day, the manufacturer of that controller that will warranty it, right? So it allows us to have a special relationship kind of with our customer in that sense too, and quick feedback and a lot of collaborative work as well. I'm glad you brought that up because it's something that doesn't get talked about a lot. I think people are always concerned about proprietary systems and trade secrets and you know, obviously you know, people copying designs. And I think this talk of open source coming from the like, right the tech and the software background, which I which you've had experience in, why is that approach important for you and why is that something you've adopted? Well, two reasons. The first reason is that at the end of the day, if you're so worried about your patents and your proprietary tech and all that, really the only person that, that it is detrimental to is the farmer because it's harder for them to fix the unit. It's harder for them to get mm-hmm. parts for the unit as well too. If a company, and we've had a bunch of examples of that, if a company goes bankrupt and they have a bunch of proprietary lights, a bunch of proprietary controllers. It's the farmer at the end of the day that pays the consequences, you know, just a quick Google and you'll see a bunch of examples on that. So that's the one for one reason why I think us being able to use open source parts, not open source parts, but off the shelf parts that can be quickly acquired more warning. And, you know, it is important in that sense. And then the second part too is because of the whole tech industry, VCs were looking for for tech, right? They were looking for, that's how they, they make money. So the companies were actually incentivized to have proprietary tech so that they could raise their next series A, their next series B. And that also became detrimental to that. So there's a few companies out there that do it really, really well. Let them do well. They do lights well. Great. Excellent. If you have amazing lights, I want to hear from you, right? We will implement them. If you make amazing controllers, I want to hear from you. If you do amazing answers for your fertigation, I want to hear from you. You do that great. Focus on that make it your baby, make sure that it's the best in the world and we'll implement it for the end user. And another thing, part two, another part that I want to add about the whole patent thing and, 
and being super secretive about everything that you do is that if you're so busy with like your secrecy and all that, it means you have to have a big team, right? You have to have a huge dev team and a huge mechanical engineer team because you're doing everything from zero when technology already exists. And that trickles down to the cost of your product as well, too. And it also trickles down to, as we've seen lately, mass layoffs when that money runs out, right? When the VC stops writing you a check, there's only so much you can take with, especially in the vertical farming industry where 15, 20,000 employees, maybe not that much, but you know, I'm going off maybe a bit more traditional tech here, but yeah, it's, it's expensive to be able to run all of these projects internally. And if the technology already exists, we shouldn't have to redo it from scratch. And the market is big enough. That's the reality as well too, right? I don't know, you know, maybe if you're in a competitive industry like aerospace with like Boeing and Airbus, where there's only only two companies, you could see how, you know, that's quite cutthroat business right there in terms of proprietary yeah. information. But the need is so great at this moment to be able to have food produced around the world that there is, if you have a good product, there's more than enough space for everyone. And I think that's what I've seen as a consistent story, you know, with this idea, all hands on deck. It's an important moment that everyone is involved. There's not time to have this competition mindset as opposed to cooperation mindset. And I think I love the idea of supporting the farmers and having that be the basis for your decision making, right? Because I think I heard something on a podcast like, like last, last week about Ford, right? When he created the, the, the Ford Model T, those first models, I think you could repair anything with like home tools, like I think wrenches and something like that. So. It was interesting because it was this idea of like, there wasn't the infrastructure that's in place now and all these proprietary parts and all that stuff, but just that idea that at any point, and even me growing up, like my dad taught me how to change the shocks on the car and change the oil on the car and just kind of the basic that everyone needs to know. But nowadays, like they're so like fancy and so many like computers and electronics and it's overwhelming. Like most people wouldn't even like open the hood of their car and pop because they're just like, there's too much in there. So it's overwhelming. And I think. There's something to be said for being able to, you know, just lift up the hood of your farm and just say, Hey, what's wrong? How can I fix it? And I love the fact that you build in a couple of these tests in the beginning to get people comfortable with just like rolling their sleeves up and, and just diagnosing their own problems. You could never break it too much, right? Like it, it's always, you know, you can always fix it. There's always a backup somewhere and it gives them confidence to be able to tinker a little bit with it. Like you perfect example of like cars being extremely complicated now and. You don't want to touch that anymore. <laughs> Too much tech. Yeah. So I'm curious, when you think about container farms and, and the conversations I've had, Gabriel, there's, I think about it as three different phases. There's the brand new farmer just getting started with his first, their first container farm. And then the one who's had some success. And then they're looking for like add-ons, you know, figuring out how to scale that. And then probably the other one would be partnering with a grocery store, a partner with the hospital report and then seeing maybe the hospital itself saying, Hey, we need something. We want to try this out. Research R and D is, is something you mentioned as well. So what do you think about that mix? Is there a, another phase that I haven't thought about? And you know, where are you seeing the in terms of the folks you're doing business with along that spectrum? Like how are people engaging with you? There's no doubt that probably compared to like the greenhouse, for example, industry or maybe traditional indoor, you know, inside warehouses, for example. We get a lot more of beginner growers, right? Someone that comes from a corporate background, for example, sick and tired of doing nine to five uh, and wants to do something different. So for sure, our ratios are greater on that part. So it's a responsibility for us as well to 
educate them properly and have, I think what we're seeing as well too from customers that are shopping around between different manufacturers, the ability for us to tell them, you know what, this may not work for what you're doing compared to what we're hearing is like, oh yeah, buy it, buy it, like everything works and it'll be amazing. It's best tech ever, right? Like thing, yeah. Plug and play, right? We hear plug and play all the time. And, you know, arguably we could say that our containers are plug and play because there's an actual plug that plugs into the back so you can move the container around instead of having it hard connected. Same yeah. thing for the water intake. It's an actual water plug, like a hose dead connection. So we could technically claim plug and play if we wanted to, but we don't because every farm has a dialing period. So it's important to set, you know, expectations on that side of, I'd say probably 45% of our leads from newer growers. Then we have like traditional farmers that are also looking to learn, especially the newer generation. They're like, yeah, like my parents have a dairy farm, for example, or have a traditional cover crop, but I'm interested in doing something during the winter months or doing cow feed, for example, with father. So that will be another part. And then you get to the other spectrum, which is like government agencies and big corporations. That are looking to buy either a lot of containers or they're looking to put containers here and there to be able to cover. So Caribbean islands, right? That's a big one. Government agencies to be able to provide food security to their customers. And it's a bit of a challenge for sure on our side because the needs are so great between, you know, a big corporation and a government agency. The questions are a whole lot different, you know, in between all of those uh, spectrums. But I think you covered the spectrums of potential customers, uh, potential users as well, quite well there. So having that experience with new farmers, I'm always interested because I'm always excited to see people entering this space. What are some misconceptions that first-time farmers have about getting into the spin? Well, you know, if you just scroll on LinkedIn and if you, have, you follow a lot of people in the vertical farming space, you'll hear all the time, like, new startups save 99% on your water consumption compared to traditional farming. So that's what they expect, right? And it's like, those numbers are really big. It's how you're going to measure really. I'd like to see your study on how you measure 99% less water than, than that. So a lot of it is also setting expectations on it's not plug and play. It's not like you go to Apple store and open up your MacBook and it's ready to go. There is work to be done in it as well. Yeah, yeah. There's cleaning, not glamorous, right? You will have a pest problem as well too. Yes. You know, there is a lobby at the front that protects against, you know, outside environment as much as you can, but you still have to follow your SOP. It's yeah. not going to be easy there. It's not a white lab coat that you see all the pictures on with the purple lights or the purple <laughs> lights. There's quite a bit of hard work involved into it. And once they kind of accept that fact, then you'll see a clear divide. It's either all in or, you know, all out and say, you know yeah. what, actually, that's not for me anymore. I'd rather just go back to my stand-up desk. And <laughs> yeah. And then also this idea of having offtake agreements in place or just understanding the marketing aspect of it, I think as well, because I think they can run a successful farm. They can grow crops successfully and understand that process really, really well. But there's the business side of it, the marketing side of it, right? You need to understand what you're getting into and then who's actually going to be purchasing these crops that you're growing. Huge. Yeah. I do kind of believe a little bit that if you build it, they will come. Right. Because there's such a need. We would have to talk about this again in five to 10 years to see if that's still true. But for sure, before you even consider any sort of equipment, which is even like if you wanted to start with microgreens, a growth tank in your spare bedroom, go out first in your community, go talk to the farmer's market, go talk to the local grocery store and ask them, what do you need? What's your pain point before you do anything else? And once you have that data, you know, that feedback, 
then you know where to go. Because you may think that microgreens, for example, is like a big thing because there's a lot of marketing around it. There are a lot of influencers who are pushing microgreens. And microgreens is great, right? But it's becoming saturated more and more. So, you know, you may have a really low hanging fruit like potatoes or carrots, for example, that are there and that you just need soil. And, you know, you may not need to have like a fancy equipment. And it just gets your, your feet wet a little bit as well to with the whole supply chain fight too, because yeah. it's not just I harvest and I deliver. There's certain standards you have to follow as well for cleanliness, especially in North America. So also they don't necessarily want the proofs anytime that you're ready to harvest, right? They'll want yeah. it for the weekend, the restaurants, for example. So all that you gotta, you know, really get into it first and kind of understand that. And only then you can really plan a big operation. Do you find that the folks that work with you, do they start to talk to each other? Do they start to learn about best practices, what's working, what's not? Do they get to share some of those things that are working for them in their own farms? In between each other, I haven't seen it yet, but you kind of do see a little bit of a community on Reddit, for example, oh, yeah. or on Facebook, sharing the information in between one another. Or you see a lot of trade shows as well, too. Like, hey, I tried this and it works really well. Yeah. For sure, there could be something better. If, if you want to start up idea to see <laughs> maybe some sort of LinkedIn for indoor farming, that would be. <laughs> yeah, that is something I've seen a couple of different like WhatsApp groups and I've, I've thought about some ideas. Our page, Vertical Farming Podcast gets a lot of followers, but there's something to be said. And I think probably Reddit is probably a good place to start. There's probably container farm <laughs> specifically groups that will, you'll get all the questions there. I'm sure to start. Based on your visibility in terms of like the different tech solutions you use, you mentioned controllers, irrigation systems. Are you seeing anything that's interesting for you in terms of innovation that's happening within the container space in terms of the, the different components? Yeah. So if you would have asked me like six months ago, for sure, you were seeing a lot of like AI, yeah, a lot of like really complicated systems that need like text to be sent out basically for install, right? And then that kind of slowed down a little bit with a few companies either being bought out or just slashing their staff around. So, and then what came back up from that was more simple controllers. It kind of looks like rinky dink, you could say, in terms of like, you know, the polishing of the product, the end product. Yeah. But definitely there was a bit of a sense, like a bit of a reset towards simplicity of use and being able to deploy quickly. Like, for example, like pulse, it's just, just, just a sensor array. But, you know, it's literally you plug in, you log in, and you're good to go. We're, we use a lot of Flowmaster, which was born out of the cannabis industry. Thank you for the cannabis industry, by the way, to vertical farming, just because they push so much R&D and money into it that now we're capable of doing it really to greens at a, at a more reasonable price on the LED lights, for example. And okay. so we use Trollmaster because there's no control wires, really. It's RJ12 plug, basically a telephone plug between each of oh, the yeah. controllers. So if ever you had a failure on your device, you can literally just unplug it and plug it back in and you're ready mm -hmm. to go. And for remote communities, we can even send an extra array of sensors just in case, you know, sensors is something that, you know, gets on calibrated often or even breaks someone, you know, steps on it or whatever the case may be, squishes it in between, you know, two racks, for example. So we could throw an extra sensor them and instantly get back online, right? So big fan of that company as well, too. So really seeing a big push on staying away from the AI parts for now, but you know, it will probably come back. I think AI has a space, a part in it, especially for teaching farmers actual plant methodology of it, like not the plant, what word should I be using here? Yeah, <laughs> Sorosis and all that, being able to read the plant light, right? Um, oh, I think yeah, that's yeah. 
somewhere that's quite light on and video AI will definitely help that as well too once we get to that point. And do you see the difference when farmers implement the sensors in terms of like their ability to have more insight in what's happening inside their farm? Yes, especially when they also have a baseline curve to go okay. off of as well too. It gives them like that confidence. So a good example of that is when we finish our product, like a container farm, we never just ship it out. It goes outside into a QA, QC bay, mm-hmm. plug it in, and we actually run the container for three, four days. Okay. We put it through its spaces, bring the temperature up to 30 Celsius, 110 Fahrenheit, bring it back mm-hmm. down to just above freezing, add humidity, test the lights and all that. And then after that, through the last 48 hours, we run the container how it's supposed to be run. So if you're doing the greens, you know, We'll run it with the proper CO2, the proper temperature and all that. And that gives them that baseline. So when they get the container after that, when it gets delivered, they see that graph onto their portal and allow them to say, as they're starting the operation, they can match that line to what's existing and give them confidence. And then eventually they run to take their own wings and fly. But for sure, if someone were to develop some sort of like learning assistant like that, to kind of give just a little bit of a curve, those newer beginner operate, farm operators would have more confidence because there's a bit of a panic that sets in, I guess, a little bit too. Yeah. When it becomes real, and then you know, when you panic, it's just 10 times worse, right? So yeah, if someone wants to do something that's an AI-based camera that helps farmers with like baselines, you got something there for sure. You know, that's simple to use and affordable as well too. Yeah, that's your KPI if you want to do a startup like that. What's interesting is, as I hear you talk about the, your approach, I can really see your tech background, your project managed background, because we talk about things like SOPs, we talk about KPIs, we talk about QCing equipment. You know, these are all things that, you know, from a learning and going through those experiences in tech projects, how important it is to have all those, you know, dot your I's, cross your T's and make sure you're putting out something. Because if you put in that work, ahead of time and you do that prep and you go through that flight checklist, right? And you're saying, what are the things we need to know before we put this in the hands of our customers? You're going to save yourself so much trouble and, and there's some learnings for you because you know, you're know you seeing, you're pushing your forms to the limit and seeing where it's breaking. So I think, and that's a feedback loop for you, right? And it's very, very helpful. It's, so it's, it's very interesting to see how that your background in tech has inspired you to, for some of those decisions. For sure. I mean, we don't need to be inventing any wheels here. Like all of those processes, they've always like existed. They've always been implemented, right? So yeah. it's just a question of figuring out what process works best for what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Like your flight checklist thing, you know, pilots do that for a reason. And yeah. it happens sometimes that you're about to fly and the pilots are on and say, you know what? Something's off with the motor on the left. We can't go yeah. off, right? Thank you for the checklist. So yeah. farm operators have checklists, manufacturers have checklists. And I would actually encourage if you're looking for equipment for your vertical farm, whether it's lights or controllers, ask the manufacturer, do you have a QHC checklist? And if so, can I see it? Because, you know, certain things for sure, you know, you may want to keep that kind of process a little yeah. bit more discreet. But if they want to provide them, if they do have a checklist and they want to provide it to you, that's a big, big points to be given to that manufacturer because you know that they're going through that process every time in equipment and they're just not sending equipment out really nearly without testing it. And for the listener, it, it's clear that Farm Anywhere follows those policies. <laughs> That's a good thing to know. So where are you seeing the most opportunity for Farm Anywhere? You know, for looking at this industry is growing so fast, right? So even just looking at 12 months is, is a lot. But given what you've seen so far, the implementations you've done, 
the conferences you've been attending, you know, where are you seeing the most opportunities specifically for Farm Anywhere in terms of, of growth? For sure, in terms of growth, Caribbean, very big as well. Too. Yeah. South America, very big. And Middle East as well, too. Huge, right? Those are two hot markets for growth. And then in terms of technology or equipment, you know, for us, it would be to have packages that are easier to get into. A good example of that would be, you know, LED is saturated. So there don't need to be into LEDs. Same thing with HVAC systems. Companies have been around for a hundred years, but putting packages together where someone can take a racking system from someone, you know, like a plant system, lid and tray from someone. And they come to us for the irrigation skill, that's a good example, or come to us for a side, like a 20-foot container just for a nursery to be able to expand. And then that brings me to my next point where existing farm operations are noticing the ability that containers have or the ability mm-hmm. to convert an existing shed, for example, into a vertical farm, right? So like a nursery, a greenhouse, for example, contact us to be able to put a container beside their greenhouse to do their nursery. Part and just kind of rescue that space, especially that square footage is becoming so much more expensive in big urban sprawls. Yeah. Being able to reuse that square footage for multiple reasons, for multiple use is big, right? What's a, a tough question you've had to ask yourself recently? Are we moving fast enough to be able to provide that need? That was a, a big part. I actually went to Bermuda for a project two weeks ago, but the week before that, I took a few days off, first vacation in, in like a year. Yeah. And was asking kind of, you know, those tough questions there as you're, you know, you have that step back and it was like, okay, are we moving fast enough to be able to meet the market demand? And what is the biggest weakness that we have to improve on in terms of either like for us, it's like, what's our biggest weakness in terms of manufacturing to make sure that we're still putting out a good product and meet yeah. the demand that way sure we're not putting any corners, you know, put proven technology. Sometimes we're manufacturers are forced a little bit to like, push out newer tech or newer yeah. physical hardware that hasn't been yet proven out yet just because either supply chain or whatever it is, right? So those are pretty much, you know, the tough questions at the moment now. I think, you know, if you were to ask me again in three months, it'd be quite different. For example, we don't spend that much into marketing. Yeah. You know, we let the product speak for itself. Yeah. But maybe, you know, we should put ourselves out a little bit more. You know, all questions like that, I guess any CEO, I guess, and agricultural equipment manufacturers should ask themselves as well to just to stay on, on top of things, you know? Yeah, that's a good point. One thing I thought of is we, thinking about all these conferences that are all these remote locations. Has anyone thought of launching an indoor farming conference somewhere in the Caribbean? Because I'm sure they'd get a lot of people to attend. Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah, that's such a big need there as well, too, you know? Middle East gets a lot of attention in terms of conferences in Europe as well, too. But Caribbean is definitely a place that really needs some sort of conference for sure. South America and as well, ter- too. And in terms of like, you know, pulling these founders, these conferences away from their families, I think you can make a good case. They could make it a family trip. <laughs> Once it's somewhere in the Caribbean, it's, it makes it easier conversation. Definitely a good spot to go for sure. <laughs> for sure, for sure, yeah. Okay, but I'm curious, because of... What you experienced through COVID challenges with supply chain disruptions, you know, that was a very big wake up call for folks in the industry. And especially for someone like you who's very dependent on, you know, your manufacturing capabilities and redundancies. So what did that do for you? And how did you think differently, uh, maybe pre COVID and like post COVID? And, you know, how do you think about those, those challenges going forward? Well, when we raised a C round of investment 
performing or 2.0. It was really in the middle of COVID, right? So we didn't like really have to deal with the impact before COVID through COVID. We were towards the, you know, the three quarter way through COVID. So we had the opportunity to at least be able to know what was going on, like learn from other people and make proper steps so that if there were to be a, another COVID, hopefully not, right? But if there were to be, we wouldn't be as impacted. So one of those was like to source everything locally. We yeah. live very little that comes from overseas. A lot of our wholesalers and suppliers is what we qualify as OEM very often as well too. So we get from either Vancouver or the UN very close because like our trays, for example, our plastic trays and things like that. So it allows us to weather supply chain issues in that sense. And hopefully that pays off in the long run as well too. And, and it definitely does pay off in terms of quality of the actual product too by either doing everything ourselves. So that's very, do we have our own electrician, our own plumber, our own spray foam booth, our own paint booth as well too, our own painting. There's really nothing that gets done outside our own HVAC tech as well too. So that allows us to also weather their problems and also allows us to control the quality of the work throughout the process and have a lot of communication between the electrician and the plumber and the painter and make sure that the processes are smooth in between them and that everything kind of gets married together into one final product, you know, one final system integration. So that plays a big role as well for the supply chain thing issues there. Yeah, it's good. It's good to see how much you've built in and the fact that it was a wake up call makes you, puts you in a position to make sure that you're prepared for that going forward, which is great. So as we wrap up, I've been leaving some space at the end of these conversations because of the nature of this audience. It's a lot of your colleagues in the space, a lot of folks in vertical farming, you know, your fellow CEOs and founders. Is there a message that you have for the industry that you'd like to, you know, talk to people about or just, you know, I'd like to kind of put a, give you the stage for that? Yeah. If anything, we are at the beginning again you know, flip phone stage of this era. There is no need to act like competition, like big corporate entities, right? I think that we should collaborate together, work on our strength. Everyone has strength. And I think we should stop trying to do everything and do one thing really, really good and then collaborate together. And at the end of the day, you know, the end user is the priority and that's what we want. We want the end user, the farmer operator to benefit from that tech and not be hindered by it like we see many, many times. So the focus should definitely be moving towards open sourcing our tech as much as possible and have always have the farmer at the center of the problem solving that we're doing constantly. I really appreciate that you've said that. I think there's going to be more of a movement, I feel, towards more of the open source and just people who vibe with that ethos, I think, are going to start collaborating and probably you'll start to see some sites where people can like share best practices. And I think that's going to be something that's going to be for the benefit of the entire industry. So I love the fact that you've talked about it and we've brought it up on the show. Based on your experience in the industry, it's almost like you're a veteran now in the space. <laughs> if you can say something like that, because, you know, because of the experiences you had, but also the ups and downs that you've had. And then also how it's been interesting to hear how your background in tech has really put you in this position to learn, you know, best practices. And so I think what you're doing is amazing. I'm really glad we got connected and I'm really appreciate you taking some time to share your story and your background. Thank you. Yeah. And same here too as well. Thanks for bringing, be able to start that conversation too with everyone. You're at your 167 podcast now or something like that. No, we're closing it on a hundred and then I have a couple of other interviews in the can, but definitely within the next couple of months, we'll cross the hundred mark. It's crazy because I was thinking about 
I thought I'd been doing it for two years, but actually this March is three years of the show. It's amazing how I thought I was going to have like a couple of, you know, a couple dozen interviews and then the show is going to be over. I was like, oh, I spoke to everybody. <laughs> Every conference I go to, I come back with like a stack of cards. So it's exciting. And then I have people coming back to give updates on the industry. And so it's exciting to have just found it at the time when the excitement has picked up again. And to get to tell these stories, you know, it's something to see the company from the outside. But I love the this ability to sort of tell your personal story because everyone has been entering the industry through different paths. And there's no one path because it's such a new industry, which, which I love to hear about. Yeah, I really do appreciate the way you ask and formulate your questions when you're interviewing all the different those because a lot of times I'm listening and I'm like, Oh yeah, yeah, like yeah, I want to know that question. Like <laughs> the question just as there, you know, like yeah. it allows to be able to have information sharing and learn quite a bit from others and you know, sometimes same situations, sometimes different situations. And I think that will just help us move the industry way, way, way further yeah. ahead there with what you're doing. Uh, a lot of people think like podcasts is just like an entertainment thing. You know, a lot is an issue. Some of them, you know, thought there's not a lot of information, but I think what you're doing there makes definitely, anyways, in my experience, it makes a big difference yeah. in the industry to be able to share that information that you kind of claw out of <laughs> there. Yeah, I appreciate that. I come from a podcasting background. I, had, I started my first show. It's called Podcast Junkies, where I interview other podcasters. So that was my entry into the podcasting world, 310 interviews there. So I definitely cut my teeth because long form interviews and got really comfortable with them. But I always tell people in a podcast conversation, there's three people. There's the host, the guest, and then the listener. And to never forget, there's someone listening to the podcast, you know, someone listening to this conversation right now and bringing them into the conversation, including them in the conversation. And I'm really glad you said that. Like I've been in that position myself where you want them to ask that follow-up question. You're saying like, oh, yes, I'm glad you did that. Because a lot of times your new podcasters, they'll just ask They'll have a piece of paper and they'll ask their five questions and then they won't go deep or they won't be curious or they won't pull the threads. And I think that's where the best, you know, stories come from and where the best conversations come from. So I appreciate them. Glad that the podcast is adding value for you as well. Thanks. Yeah. Do you ever get feedback from the actual listener directly as to what they would like to see in the future? Like, how do you like interact with the listeners of the podcast to be able to get that feedback? A couple of different ways. So. Regular listeners will know that you can leave a, go to ratethispodcast.com forward slash VFP and they can leave a rating and a review. And then I read those out on the air, which I really enjoy doing. I've got people just connecting with me on LinkedIn. They said, Hey, Harry, you don't know me. I just found your podcast. I've listened to all the episodes and now I'm closing in on 90 to 100 episodes. So like, I don't know if people can listen to the entire catalog, but what's happening is they're entering the industry and they want to know like who and what's happening. And this is something that a growing industry and they're getting so much information from the podcast that they're letting me know. And so they'll reach out on LinkedIn, occasionally a, a DM on the socials. That's why it was important that I have all the social channels. So they usually find a way, Harry at verticalfarmingpodcast.com. So I always, as a podcaster, feedback is like your gold, like it's your fuel. I think I want to know, like when people hear the show, I went to Indoor Icon and I asked the question in one of the panels and I said, yeah, I'm Harry from Vertical Farming Podcast. And so after the panel, like three or four people came up to me like, oh, well, like, I, I love the show. Like I've been listening and someone was standing next to me like, oh, you're Harry. Cause you know, my face is not anywhere on the podcast and maybe I'll change that soon. But they just, they, but what's funny is they're like, oh, I recognize your voice. <laughs> they just, especially, you know, you start to hear someone week in and week out, you know, you get to know what that person sounds like. And when they're in person, it, it feels some funny sometimes. And as a podcaster, I should be used to it, but it's interesting. 
Yeah. You've ever thought of doing the YouTube form as well too? Like basically just recording exactly yeah. in terms of for recognition, I guess? Yeah. Yeah. So I think what I have a lot of it recorded. And so it's just now a function of getting through the back catalog and starting to put those on YouTube. And then obviously sharing with the guests, you know, getting their okay to put that on. But I do have that the plan for the next month or two, getting the entire back catalog on and then going forward, having it on YouTube and people start to recognize me more than they get. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's my partly form of doing yeah. podcasts too as well. You know, I'll go on. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. And just have a little something going on the computer, you know, while we're doing yes, exactly. and all that. Yeah. It is the number two search engine. So it's important that we get the concept on YouTube as well. So that's part of the plan. So thank you for that reminder and we'll start to get that. All good. Soon. All good. Yeah. 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 So for far, um, your, your experience. Uh, yeah, of course. The farmanywhere.ag for folks to learn more about you and the company. Any, anywhere else you want to send people to get connected with you? You can do farm underscore anywhere on Instagram if you'd like to as well. Again, you know, we're not fancy schmancy on uh, yeah. polish marketing yet, but uh, yeah, I'm just going to our website and uh, pick up the phone. Like we have a 1-800 number on purpose, wherever you're in the world, give us a call. You know, of course, email is fine too, but you know, we're always there to be able to take your calls and start the conversation going as well to anywhere you are in the world and every, any issue that you want. And also if you have interesting tech that you think would be interesting, for us to look at, to be able to implement and to give out to our farmers as part of our package solution, reach out as well to us. We have a little form there on the website. If you have something to share with us like that, I'm more than willing to have a look at that as well too. And also a good way is to have a look at Cultivated's website, right? They're partners. There's a bunch of tech there as well. If if you're looking for equipment and things like that. I appreciate you sharing your time and your story. Thanks, Gabriel. Thanks. Yeah, you do. Thanks to Gabriel for coming on the show and sharing his story. As always, full show notes are available at verticalfarmingpodcast.com. Special thanks to our Season 8 title sponsor, Cultivated. If you are looking into a vertical farm and don't know where to start or which technology would suit your needs, reach out to them today. Best of all, their service is free because they work on behalf of their partners. Learn more at cultivated.com, and that's spelled C-U-L-T-I-V-A-T-D.com. Just leave out that last E. Podcast production marketing provided by Fullcast. Learn more at fullcast.co to see if a podcast is right for your brand or organization. As a reminder, if you enjoyed this episode or past episodes, please leave us a rating and a review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash VFP, and I'll be sure to read those out on future episodes. Tune in next week for my conversation with yet another fascinating leader from the world of vertical farming. This time, it's a return engagement with Alexander Olison of Babylon Microfarms. We got to reconnect again at Indoor AgCon in Las Vegas earlier this year, and there's a ton of new developments with Alexander and Babylon that I can't wait to share with you. Until we meet again, here's to your health. Thanks for listening. To read the full show notes for this episode, which includes any links mentioned in the episode, as well as a full show transcription, visit verticalfarmingpodcast.com. There, you can sign up for our email list to be notified when new episodes are published.